Good morning. It's good to see you. I feel after we hear Don say that verse, we could just be dismissed and go home, right? It's just one of those power-pinched verses that uh, just get you. Anyway, it's an honor to be with you this morning. For those of you who don't know, Richard, uh, Pastor Richard has been extremely busy over these last three weeks. He was up at Malibu Men's Weekend, for those of you who were there, uh, and there's about 300 guys that he was teaching to then. Then he came back for a week of vacation, and just a little insight, when Richard vacations, it means he hikes 20 miles instead of 10. And so it's just, the, the man is nonstop going. Then he gets on a plane and goes back up to Malibu to teach at the couples retreat. And then he has to spend a week with lead pastors like myself, which will take it out of him. Uh, all the lead pastors from various locations at a, t- at a lead pastor retreat this past week. So on Wednesday, Richard sounded like this. His voice was absolutely gone. Uh, it was the quietest I've ever seen him. Uh, and so we, we have a, a, a man leading us who is extremely gifted and literally left it all on the court. And so uh, it's an honor to be standing here uh, in his place with you this morning, even though it is a bit early, uh, but way to go for making it. Uh, but if you would pray with me and then we'll dive into this text. Father, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for Richard and we ask that uh, you would uh, heal his voice uh, so he comes back even stronger. We thank you for the way that you've gifted him. Uh, to lead this congregation and lead this church. And God, we thank you for texts like this Ephesians that is just so rich with all of the meaning that comes with it and a chance for us to get our hands on it and look at it and be energized and, and strengthened through it. And so Spirit, I ask you that you would come into this room and you're already here. May we be made aware of your presence. May you start to work. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. A few weeks ago, my wife and I moved. We, we had a house down here, uh, and, and we moved a couple miles up the freeway to a quieter neighborhood. We lived on an extremely busy street, and I have an extremely busy little boy that likes to run towards streets. And so we figured, that's probably not a good idea. So we moved. There's something about moving. It, it's quick to get everything in boxes, right? You can box everything. You can ship things off to the Goodwill or donate or wherever you go, and that's fine. There's an end in sight. The cabinets are empty. Everything is on the, uh, on the truck, and, and things are set. There's an end to it. That's moving. That's packing. Unpacking takes forever, you get it in the house, you start undoing boxes, and then like four days later, you think you're done, and you walk out to your garage, and there's another box. Where did that come from? And then, for me, I'm looking for my sandals for two weeks. <laughs> Somebody took them, and I know they hid them. And so I'm going through every single nook and cranny of this house, trying to find my sandals, because... It, the sun's out. You don't want to wear shoes anymore, right? And so I'm looking. Finally, I find them. Packing has that. Unpacking never has an ending to it. There was one box. I walk out, and I see this box on, on my garage, the little workbench, and I pull it out, and it's all of our pictures. And these are times when I had hair. And it, I mean, it was, it was good-looking hair, too. And so I'm seeing these photos, and I'm p- taking them out, and, and we're hanging them on our shelves. We're putting them places. And, I, and then I start to recognize, oh, that's a photo of my dad the last time we went sailing together. Oh, this is a photo of, of my in-laws. This is a photo of my entire family. And we're placing them on shelves. And, and something hit me. And I don't get teary-eyed very often, but I did then. These are people who love my wife, myself, and my son, and our new son that's coming unconditionally. 
There's nothing that we can do to separate us or, 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 or to make it so that these people wouldn't love us. They are for us. They are in our court. And the thought hit me. If I had these photos, their wedding photos, their family photos, artwork that friends had painted for us, if I had these photos when I was this tall in junior high being made fun of, what would my life be like then? If I can see myself as little 13-year-old Brad, and I was small until my sophomore year in high school, I was like 5'2", and then, uh, and then if I were to saw myself getting picked on in junior high, getting, getting beat up, and I saw myself 15 years, 20 years, I'm older than I think, and, and I see myself this far in the future, and I see all of these people who are for me, how would 13-year-old Brad react? knowing that he was fully loved no matter what he experienced then. Question is for you too. If you knew right now how much love that Christ has for you, how would your life be different? If you can look back at the time where you felt insecure, at the time where words were, were said to you, where you were made to feel small, when you were made to feel like a failure, if you can go back into that version of yourself and look forward to this place now and know that there are people who are for you, how would you have heard those words? How would the job loss uh, been, been handled? How would you have reacted if you knew that you were loved, no matter what other people might say to you? What would happen if at those unlovable times you knew at the core of your being that you were loved by everyone around you? Knowing you're loved would, would have you, have you would have dated, <laughs> would you have dated differently? I can speak, trust me. Knowing that you're loved, would you have dated differently? Knowing that you're fully loved in business, would you have taken more chances to be generous? Would you have risked more? Would you have done more for a friend knowing that you had nothing to lose? You didn't have to gain anyone's approval. Would those damaging words spoken to you landed so hard? What I'm trying to get at here is the same thing that Paul's getting at in this text. He's trying to beat into us, just pound into our brains that you are 100% fully loved no matter what you do, unconditionally, end of story, period. Now let's move on. There's nothing you can do to get more love into you. He's trying to show us what's called eschatological realism, which you play that one in Scrabble and you'll win. It's this idea, eschatological means the end times, the future self, what Jesus says about you. Realism means this, the, the, it's real, it's tangible. What he's trying to get us to do is live into our future selves, to live into the reality that no matter what you do, you are never going to lose the identity you have in Christ. No matter what anyone says about you, your future self is already there. You get to live towards it and live into it. This is what Paul's been doing for the last two chapters in Ephesians. We can have that reality right now and he's hoping to instill into the small church meeting in the house in Ephesus that because of this love, because when you and I grab a hold of it, you and I are forever changed. And last week we learned about the dividing lines that are taken away. When those happen, when you see you're loved, when you see that your neighbor is loved, when the dividing walls that we make are taken away, people will see the kingdom of God in their midst. The church will be visible and God will be glorified. And so Paul recaps for us these themes that frame this letter moving forward. 
the mystery of God's love. Then he says there's a foundation for this love. And then he says this love is actually immeasurable. So the first thing Paul gets at is this mystery. And we're moving towards the midpoint of this book. You can divide this book into two sections, chapters one through three. You might have already covered this. If not, this is a review. The first three chapters are, this is who you are. This is who you are in Christ. The second half of this book, four through six, is because of who you are, this is how you ought to live. But Paul wants to be sure before we get to the who, how you ought to live, he wants to show us the why we should live this way. This is who you are. This is how you should live. So we're coming to the midpoint of the book where he's closing down this part. He's already proved his point. You're loved. Your identity's secure. He's going to turn the corner here pretty quick. But the main division that Paul is seeking to solve here is the division between our hearts that we don't think or we don't believe what God truly says about us. And so he begins in verse 3. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly, briefly two long chapters. In reading this, then, you will also be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. There's a word that shows up three times in this paragraph. It's the word mystery. The Greek word for the word mystery and the English word for the word mystery are a little different in meaning. When we hear the word mystery, we think of like a true crime book or like an unsolved mysteries, that TV show that used to creep me out when I was growing up. These mysteries, these dark secrets that are obscure and are puzzling. Sometimes it's so mysterious that you just can't explain it. In the Greek, the word is mysterion. It's different. It still means something is secret, but it's not a closely guarded one here. Originally, it referred to a truth into which something had been, something or someone had been initiated. Later, the word carried a connotation of a secret religious teaching that was restricted to certain people. But Paul here is spelling the beans on what the mystery was, so to speak. He, he's coming at it and saying, hey, here's the mystery. I've solved it. Gentiles, everyone who's not Jewish. You're in. That's the mystery. It's solved. Gentiles are in. There's no more division walls. There's acceptance isn't just locked away just for one group of people who, who happen to come from one racial line. This is the mystery, Paul is saying, is no longer. It's solved. Everybody's in. And how God can do that in itself is a bigger mystery. It's a mystery that comes onto the mystery. It's like, you're in. We don't know how God loves everybody so much, especially these two people that are opposite ends, that are so antagonistic. We don't know how he does it, but he does it. That's the mystery. In verse 6, he says, The mystery that is through the gospel, the Gentiles, heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Paul uses the word together three times to prove his point. They used to be far away. They used to be divided. Now they're brought in. They're part of the same family. They're together in one body. They're together in one promise. Paul says this is good news, and it is good news. This is what the gospel is. You and I can be friends with God. 
you and I are in. You and I can be involved. Everyone is invited. Everybody was in. And this message that was hidden is now wide in the open. But it doesn't just end there. If it ended there, it would be, well, that's, what's the big deal? It doesn't end there. The same love that Christ has for each of us isn't just big enough to unite people from different, different ethnicities. It's bigger than that. It's bigger. The kicker is that somehow all of that love that united these two people groups that were divided since the beginning of time is pointed directly squarely at you and you get to experience. Why is it such a big mystery? Because there's no way that we can ever fully comprehend how big that love is. And it's for us. Here's an example. How many of us use Google to solve arguments? That's why it was created, correct? How high is that mountain? I think it's 5,000. I think it's 7,000. Let's Google-ate it. It's a verb. Let's calculate it on our Google. Let's type it in. Oh, we're both wrong. It's 6,500. And so Google has solved arguments. It's, it's taken the wonder out of things, right? We Google things for answers. So if you were to sit here and Google, how big is this love that Christ has for us? You would probably end up, I'm not saying it's happened. I don't know if you can Google it. I'm just imagining, Okay. What if we were to Google that? What if we were to come back? Paul is saying that you would get 18 trillion results in 0.75 seconds. I always think their little timestamp is funny. We got this and this fast. Well, imagine if you would have done a little bit more work, you would have gotten more. So they got this much. If we were to Google God's love, it is so deep and vast that you get 17 trillion results in 0.75 seconds. And there is no way on God's green earth you would ever get through page five of reading all of them. This is how big it is. There's no way that you would ever exhaust it. You might get to page six, but the verse, look in verse eight, the riches of this love that is for us. Paul uses some pretty vast language. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach the, to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. The word boundless carries with it this meaning that something is untraceable, something is unsearchable, something is ungoogleable. If you tried it, here's the results you might give. Here's some of the riches of God's grace. You have resurrection from the death of sin. You have the victorious enthronement with Christ. You have reconciliation with God. The end of hostility and the beginning of peace. Access to God through Christ and by the Spirit. Membership of his kingdom and household. Being an integral part of his dwelling place. Spiritual gifts. The glory of inheritance which God has in store for all of us. And so much more. This is just what we can gather from the first two chapters of this book. Let alone Paul's other writings. Let alone the other parts of the New Testament. And the entire Old Testament. There's no end to this. Translators have tried to invent words that, have, that meet this boundless. Here's what they've come up with. Inexplorable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, which is a fun one to say. Incalcul incalculable, infinite, or they could have just said infinity plus one. All of this is what Christ has given to us and it will never come to an end. What is Paul getting at in all of this? simply said, you're enough. In a world where we've seen two people and many more in recent history, in recent days, take their lives because they didn't think they were enough, Paul says this message to us, you're enough. Just the way you are, you are enough. You are gifted, 
You are loved, you are cared for, you are, are accepted more than you could ever imagine. And it's important we get this part of the book because the next part is a bunch of instructions on how Paul wants us to live. But to start and end this part with, you are absolutely loved just the way you are, more than you could ever think of. You can't put an end to it. This all sounds great, but it always leads me to more questions. How does this love change us? Paul's glad you asked. Here's what he says. This is our foundations that that this love is rooted in. In verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts and your faith. And I pray that you are being rooted and established in love. Paul's praying a prayer that this love of Christ will be known to the deepest parts of your being. The first step, and he's kind of mixing metaphors here. And the first step he says is, I pray that you would be strengthened in your inner being. He's praying that Christ would take up residence in the deepest part of your lives. That this residence wouldn't be a temporary lodging. That, that it would be a permanent place. That, that, so that in times of your weaknesses, so that in times where you feel that you are insecure, so that in those times where you feel that you are not enough, you can turn on this strength that is at the deepest core of your being and you know that you have the confidence that you are loved, that you are enough. There's confidence in this strength because in that confidence, we can run straight to the arms of Christ and we don't have to be afraid of what he's going to do. He always meets us with love. Think of the prodigal son. You have this boy who who betrayed his father, said, I wish you were dead, takes the money, runs away, goes to the far country, the gospels say, the farthest country, eats with swines, which is a picture of uncleanliness. He, he He didn't be around pigs that day. Then he comes back and what's the response of the father? Father, runs to meet him, hikes up his cloak, which is a sign of disrespect, or, and, and runs, meets his son halfway there, embraces him in all of his smell, and brings him back. This is the picture that Paul's saying, you can come, no matter your condition, you are loved completely, that in times of weakness, through the Spirit, we can see our truest strength. It means we can be strong enough to be weak. It means that we are strong enough to be weak. We can dance. And even though we have a limp, we can still dance. The Spirit enables us to dance. This is what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians when he says, In my weakness, I find strength. In my times of utter exhaustion, I can lean on this truth that I'm loved completely. And Paul says, I want you to be rooted and established in this strength. Paul mixes metaphors here. Rooted is an agricultural. Think of a tree that's rooted. He says, in those roots, I want those roots to go deep and I want them to suck the life of Christ's love and you will grow strong. Think of Psalm 1 where it says, "Though blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked in the way of sinners but whose delight is the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, that person is like a tree planted by the streams of water, which will yield fruit in the season, whose leaf does not wither whatsoever they do prosper. 
This is what Paul wants for us, that we are rooted in strength, that we have deep roots that go down into the bedrock of Christ's love for us, that when the winds and the storms come, we are not shaken. Nothing can move us from this. And from there we find our life. Then Paul says, I want you to be established, rooted, established. It's a construction term. He's meaning that our lives are well built, a well built house. How many of you ever been in a house where you walk across the room and everything shakes? Okay, maybe it's just me. But you're in a house and you're sitting there and the winds blow and you're like, ooh, this little house is going to come tumbling down. And, and you start to think, this, this, Paul says, that's not the house I want you to be in. I want you to be in this established house. When the storms come, the winds blow, the rains come, this house doesn't move. I grew up in California. We had these things called earthquakes like every other day. Sometimes you were in a house and you barely felt it. Other times you're in a house and it's a small earthquake, but it feels like the big one. Paul says, you want to be established, built on this cornerstone that is Christ. The solid foundation. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. He says you can have these foundations that are built on sand or you can have these foundations that are built on the rock. The rains come, the sand erodes, your house has fallen. Or you can build upon Christ. Foundation, when those rains come, when the storms blow, you are solid. Because here's the reality. Most of us would rather find our security in other things rather than being rooted and established in Christ. We would rather cope with our insecurities rather than to be complete. We'd rather pop a pill. We'd rather take a drink. We'd rather swipe left, right, up, down, whatever it is. We'd rather click, share. We'd rather visit the porn site. We'd rather hashtag the latest term in or rather than to be complete. We think that those would make us feel loved. We think that those things will make us feel whole. But those things don't solve the problem. Those are shallow roots. Those are sandy foundations. Those mask the symptoms rather than going after the actual problem. Those are like the cold meds. They're not really curing the cold. They're just stopping the runny nose. The runny nose is going to come back eventually. Paul is saying, in order to get the root of your being, I want you to be rooted and established in this love. Go after the core of who you are. Realize that Christ loves you. He says more. He says, I may have that power together, this is verse 18, with all the holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. There is a lot in these two verses, but there's one word that I wanna call our attention to. It's the word grasp. It actually means ambushed. It's translated in a weird way. It, it, it comes up in, in different translations of different things, and it's a little clue to us that this word is bigger than what we think. It's the word, and I want you to say it back to me, it's the word cotalambano. Okay, the rest of you. Cotalambano. Okay. It means ambushed, surprised. And being ambushed or surprised isn't really a good thing. Paul uses this word in other areas. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, beware unless judgment day cotalambanos you, grasps you, surprises you, amazes you, jumps out at you. Think of walking in a dark room and your friend, who isn't really your friend after this, jumps out at you and goes, bah! 
surprises you, catches you completely off guard. Peter says this word in Acts 10. Uh, Peter uses it on himself. He had just had lunch with Cornelius. He just tasted bacon for the first time, and it's delicious. And he comes back, and he says, hey, guys, I had, I, this is what happened. And he says, says to them, uh, now I realize that God doesn't play favorites. The word realize is the word catalambano. I realize. I'm shocked by this. I'm amazed by this. I'm thunderstruck by this. I was, we moved here in February of 2014 and there was a, a rainstorm, right? I guess that's normal, but it was new to me. I come from sun and we were, we were, well, I was walking down the street. I was going to go for a little walk. It was just drizzling. And, and so I put my hood on and I'm walking down the street. Carrie is on the porch uh, for a while. We watched rain because we were amazed by it. And, uh, and so I'm walking down the street and all of a sudden the loudest thunder I have ever heard in my entire life up until that point struck. Carrie said I had a good vert about that high, that I jumped. Not only did I jump, I jumped midair, turned backwards, ran home. It was the, it was the thunder at that time. We lived just a couple blocks uh, east of here. It was the thunder when the lightning struck the chapel. It was that same one, because then I heard all the sirens, and I was, what's going on? Oh, that's the church. And so it was so loud. It caught me completely off guard. And what's funny, and, and when you're scared like that, when you're caught completely off guard, you'll never forget it. Paul is saying here, Christians, you know that God loves you. That's what we always say, right? God is love, yay. But I want you to fully grasp it. I want you to be strengthened and amazed, to be awestruck by how wide, how high, how deep, and how long this love is for you. I want you to experience this love, because when you experience this love, you won't go out looking for the coping mechanisms that we normally go to. Once you've tasted the real deal, you won't want to taste the substitute anymore. Once you find your security and you are awestruck by this, you won't go chasing the ones that say they love you, but they really don't. Popping pills won't be worth it. Going to the websites won't be worth it because the love and acceptance that you're looking for there will be found here. It brings me back to those photographs of your life. Once you realized how deeply you are loved, you won't go out looking for a false love to complete you because you're already complete. You don't need anything else. And because of this love, Paul says, you are able to do immeasurably more than we can ever think. Remember those pictures I was unpacking? I'm looking through them. I'm being reminded of all the ways that people know me and love me completely. That question I asked you at the beginning, if you knew you were loved, how would your life be different? If I knew I was loved, would I have recoiled into myself in junior high and high school and parts of college? If I knew that I was loved, how would those days have been different? When those days come now, when people tell you you're not enough, your world will tend to shrink. Your imagination is stifled and your carrying is limited because we allow those words to come in and create doubt in our lives. We allow them to, to doubt the way that Christ thinks of us. We doubt the completeness that we already have. 
And because of this, we question that completeness. We begin to think we're not good enough. We begin to start telling ourselves that we're just sinners. And then pretty soon our whole theology is based on the fact that we are terrible people. We sing songs that we're terrible. And we start defining ourselves as terrible. But the problem is we're not defined like that in scriptures. Paul says to the saints, Jesus calls you loved. You are loved completely. When we say we'll never be good enough, then we'll never be good enough. When we say that we're unlovable, we are saying to God himself that he can't love us, but the truth is completely the opposite. You are 100% lovable and completed by that love. And what we do is when we start to doubt that, we start limiting our imagination. We start limiting, limiting what God can do through us and for us. But if we would just believe what he says about us, imagine what you could do. Paul is imagining a God who is able to do immeasurably more than the limitations that we put on ourselves. This is, in essence, Paul's closing prayer. Now to him who is, in, who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church. In Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Because you are complete in God's love, you can go for your dreams. Because God's ideas for what you can do are immeasurably more than anything you can imagine. Think about God's track record. He starts with a 90-year-old couple that can't have children, and he says, guess what? You're going to birth a nation. They can't do it. They never even imagined that. He takes an orphan and says, you're going to lead this nation out of Exodus. He, he imagines the runt of the family, David, the one who was forgotten. Samuel comes and says, Are these all the sons you have? And Jesse, the dad, goes, oh yeah, I got one more. He takes that one, kills a giant, takes down Goliath, becomes a king, he uses an army that was led by Gideon that was a quarter of the size of the superpower that he was facing, and they win. He, t- he calls upon a young virgin named Mary and says, you're going to give birth to my son. He calls a fisherman, a tax collector, and a zealot, calls them together. They have nothing in common but Jesus, and he trusts them with a message that'll change the world. He forgives a man that had betrayed him and literally walked away, ran away. He uses that person, Peter, and says, upon you, I'm going to build this church. He takes a man named Saul, changes his name to Paul, and says, you were out to kill the message, but I'm going to make you the chief messenger of this Christ. He takes the least and makes them strong. He calls them. This is his track record. And he calls you with all of your hang-ups, with all of your put-downs. Imagine what he wants to do with you once you've imagined what he can do with you. If you think you can imagine it, quadruple it and you might catch the shadow of what God wants to do. Our God has quite the imagination and he has quite the method. He uses the weak to, to, to replace the strong. All this to say, because you are already fully complete in Christ, you are capable of much more than you could ever ask or think of. Paul's prayer 
Live fully into who you already are. You are loved, you are complete, you are whole. May you never come to an end of unpacking all that Christ has for you. May each day you walk into your garage and find a box full of surprises and wonder. And may you know the fullness and the fullness that is inside of you. And with tears in your eyes like me unpacking pictures of my dad and my family, may you hang the photo of a God who thinks the world of you right in the centerpiece of your heart. A God who has your name written on his hand. A God who has your name on his heart like we sung. And may you live into that love. And you then may you watch with wonder and awe what God can do for you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you love us wholly and completely. And God, because of this wholeness and completeness, may we live, not just pretend like we're living, not just uh, fall for the cheap substitutes, but may we truly live what you have for us. May this love become the centerpiece of all we are, May we define ourselves first and foremost as loved and called and handpicked by you. You've created us. You've woven our innermost beings. You've called us from the beginning of time. There's nowhere we can go where we can outrun you. There's nothing we can do to outrun you. May we get a grasp of that today. May you ambush us with that. In Jesus' name, amen.